Today's special episode is by Adrian Vonderveld. Adrian is currently a PhD candidate in early modern Atlantic world and European history at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champagne. His dissertation, entitled When Unwelcome Night Came, examines the role of nocturnality in the British, Dutch, and French Caribbean in the 17th and 18th centuries. Via the categories of mobility, religion, sociability, technology and production, and violence, his work employs a cultural methodology to explore the ways that people discussed and experienced the night, and applies it as a lens to see the way that marginalized people, especially the enslaved, could use it to resist colonial authority. In today's episode, he illuminates the dark nighttime culture of the French Caribbean and reveals everyday life in the tropical new frontier for European empires. On the night of November 4th, 1765, several men were playing an underground game of cards in Cap Francais, the largest city in the French Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue. They were probably drinking alcohol and chewing or smoking tobacco while sitting around a tavern table, their cards dimly lit by a few candles. Over the course of several decades, colonial governors had enacted legislation that banned these types of games of chance in order to preserve taxation revenue and maintain religious dictates against avarice and greed. Nevertheless, such diversions were as common in the colonies as they were in metropolitan France. One of the participants in this particular night's game was Jacques Moret, a shoemaker who had immigrated to the island from southern France. As a skilled artisan, most of his customers would have been whites and free people of color, because the majority of the island's population, enslaved people of African descent, were rarely afforded shoes. At some point during the game, the men at the table started to argue over something, and it turned into a full-out brawl. In the midst of the fight, Maury struck another one of the men in the head, leading to that man's death. And after Maury was arrested by the night watch, he was tried and condemned to death for murder. However, as was his right as a French citizen, he appealed his sentence to the king, Louis XV, and he claimed that he had acted in self-defense. It took almost five years, but evidence from the archives shows that Maury's appeal was successful and his crime was reduced from murder to manslaughter. While it may seem incidental that this story occurred at night, understanding the nocturnal context illuminates several facts about life in the French Caribbean. First, it's obvious that people engaged in social activities like gambling at night during their free time, as otherwise they would have been working. Second, Nighttime activity was, and often continues to be, seen as less socially acceptable because the darkness was assumed to hide the truth. Third, it was easier to kill someone at night and get away with it, often by claiming self-defense. Indeed, European and colonial laws differentiated between crimes committed during the day and those at night with victims given greater leeway to defend themselves and criminals receiving harsher punishment for transgressing the law. 
Hello, my name is Adrian von der Felde, and I am an historian of colonialism and nocturnality in the early modern world, specifically in the Caribbean. In this episode of the French History Podcast, we will learn about everyday life in the French Caribbean, especially during the 18th century, and take a brief look at what using the night as a category of analysis can help us uncover about the era. As this is the first episode of the French History Podcast to focus solely on the Caribbean, I want to begin by providing some geographical and historical context to help understand the setting of the French Caribbean and its three major colonies of Guadeloupe, Martinique, and Saint-Domingue. The area of these three colonies comprised less than 12,000 square miles, or about 19,000 square kilometers, with Saint-Domingue making up about 90% of the territory. And for comparison, this land is about the size of modern-day Belgium, or less than half the size of West Virginia. The colony of Saint-Domingue was located on the western half of Hispaniola, about 650 miles away, or three to five days sail, from the small island of Guadeloupe in the east, which was only about 80 miles north of Martinique, or about a half day's sail. France initially settled most of its Caribbean colonies between the 1620s and 1660s. Initially driven by private companies with some state support, colonization was a difficult process. Death from accident, disease, and malnourishment was a constant threat. And it also entailed violent conflict, specifically with the local Carib population on Guadeloupe and Martinique, as well as competing European empires, especially Spain, England, and the Dutch Republic. Indeed, the 17th and 18th century Caribbean saw constant warfare, and control of the Antillean islands constantly shifted. And in the case of Saint-Domingue, French pirates on Tortuga, the small island of pirates of the Caribbean fame, established settlements on the western side of Spanish Hispaniola, and these were eventually recognized by Louis XIV as belonging to France. But the most important thing to keep in mind about the French Caribbean was its existence as a slave society. Western European empires, especially Britain, the Dutch Republic, France, and Portugal, had been plundering Africa of its people since the mid-16th century. And via the Middle Passage, French ships alone had transported about 1.2 million captives to the Caribbean. Yet, by the 1790s, only about half of that number remained in these three colonies around 650,000. This 1790 population was about 50,000 larger than the total number of captives that arrived in the 13 American colonies or, or the United States between 1619 and 1808. Racialized chattel slavery was brutal wherever it existed, but in the Caribbean it was especially horrific. Enslaved people were viewed as an expendable commodity, and most enslaved people worked on large plantations, which on average had 300 men, women, and children working the fields. And for comparison, only 5% of U.S. plantations even had over 100 people, even though the amount of land available to cultivate in the U.S. was significantly larger. And the French colonial plantation economy produced crops like coffee, indigo, and tobacco, but the primary output was sugar. On the plantation, enslaved people were literally worked to death as the average person lived only two to three years after they arrived. The working conditions and the nutrition of the plantation were so bad that many enslaved women were unable to bear children, 
and while others practiced abortion or infanticide to prevent their children from becoming slaves. It might seem that slavery in the cities, such as Cap Francais, Cap Haitien, modern-day Port-au-Prince, or Fort de France, was less physically demanding. But no matter where they lived, enslaved people existed under a regime of constant physical and sexual threat, and they were subjected to a system intended to dehumanize them. Society throughout the French Caribbean was stratified into four major groups, and I'll use the example of Saint-Domingue to show a more detailed view of how this played out. At the top of the social structure were a tiny number of Grand Blanc, the white elites who owned the large sugar plantations and had the most wealth. But most of these were absentee owners who lived in France. Many of them were part of the Ancien Regime's noble class. The next tier, the Petit Blanc, were the whites who owned small and less profitable plantations. They were also the everyday laborers similar to Jacques Moret in our opening story, and these were about 8% of the colony's total population. Next came the jeunes de couleur libre, or free people of color, almost all of whom were born in the Caribbean. And for those unfamiliar with Caribbean societies, it may come as a surprise that members of this group owned property and slaves. As a whole, This group was slightly smaller than the Petit Blanc, making up about 5% of the total population. And the last group were simply called Jeunes de Couleur. These people were the enslaved African-descended people, and they made up over 80% of the population. These strata that I just described were primarily based on class, but within them was another dominant category of difference, race. Whites were divided into two categories, those born in France and the, quote, Creoles born in the Caribbean. And I need to quickly break down this term Creole, as it's often quite confusing in how it appears in historical writings. The description I began with was the literal usage, born in the New World, or in this case, the Caribbean, and it applied to anyone, regardless of race. Many people in the 18th century used it as a pejorative, as being born in the Americas was viewed as damaging to a person's intelligence or even their genes. But historians tend to use Creole to refer to a type of culture, usually one that mixes elements from the Old World, in this case Africa and Europe, and the New World, the Americas, to create something new. It can also be a type of language based upon a variety of influences, such as the Creole spoken in modern Haiti. This is based on French and several African languages. Or Papiamentu, which is spoken in the Dutch Caribbean islands of Aruba, Bonaire, and Curaçao. Another usage that's common uh, when it comes to Creole is as a type of cuisine, such as the foods from Louisiana. Finally, Creole can also be a unique regional way of doing things. Anyway, to continue talking about the racial system of the Caribbean, let's consider African-descended people. Like whites, they were also divided into categories, but these divisions were much more complex. And at the lowest tier were the African men, women, and children who survived the Middle Passage. Derogatorily referred to as saltwater slaves in the British Caribbean, these were often derided as lazy or incalcitrant, in part because they struggled with the French language. Next were the Creole slaves, individuals born in the Caribbean, 
and they were viewed by slaveholders as being most adapted to the demands of the plantation economy. Because of a pattern of sexual exploitation of enslaved women by white men, there were many mixed-race children in the colonial world, and almost all of these children were born into slavery. But this only happened after a significant change to the French legal system that was specific to the colonies. For centuries in France, as with most European societies, a person's status had been dependent upon the father, a so-called patrilineal system. So if imagine if your father was a noble, you had the possibility of inheriting his land or titles, even if your mother was of a lower class. However, early French colonists quickly realized that this would have destroyed the future of slavery in the colonies, as it meant that all children born to enslaved women with a white father would have been free. So the law was changed to follow a matrilineal system that had children inherit the status of their mother, ensuring the continued growth of the enslaved population, and also building the practice of fathers enslaving their children. The children born with one white and one black parent were referred to as mulatra, or mulatto in English, a term we consider derogatory in the modern era. And over generations, their descendants were further categorized based upon the fraction of African or European heritage, from 7 eighths African all the way to 164th African. And in Saint-Domingue, there were nine named gradations, whereas in Guadeloupe and Martinique, there were five. Although this was clearly a terrible system of racial discrimination, one that tilted the racial scale to value whiteness over blackness, there were opportunities for African-descended people. The African-descended people who became free, either by manumission or by purchasing their liberty, could hold property, run businesses, and even own slaves. And unlike in the American South, where the infamous one-drop rule defined a person's racial status as black if they had any African heritage whatsoever— free people of color in the Caribbean could, in the eyes of the law, become white. And this was based upon someone's racial heritage and upon their wealth. And indeed, because of their wealth and their assumption of whiteness, Saint-Domingue's free people of color allied with the Petit Blanc against the revolting slaves during the earliest stages of the Haitian Revolution in 1794. And there was one last social class in the French Caribbean, and this group was defined by the liminal state of its people, specifically the fact that they existed in between slavery and freedom. And these were the Marons, or in English, Maroons, people defined by what historians call self-emancipation, or simply running away from slavery. Enslaved people would often escape at night sometimes by themselves and other times in groups of 10 to 20 people, taking advantage of the cover of darkness to get away from the plantation. And wherever slavery existed in the Americas, they joined with indigenous peoples to form long-lasting communities, and these were located outside the reach of cities and plantations. And many of the individuals lived in a perpetual state of jeopardy, and advertisements for runaway slaves appeared in the newspaper, Les Affiches Américains, years after a person had escaped, 
for slaveholders always had hope that they could recoup their losses. The main contact that Maroons had with colonial society was via outright conflict or warfare, acting as scouts, and somewhat paradoxically, helping slaveholders retrieve other escaped slaves who did not join a Maroon community. Now that we've explored some of the social structures, I want to shift to the economy and everyday life. And as I mentioned earlier, sugar was the region's primary crop, and the French Caribbean dominated the market. Saint-Domingue alone produced more than all the British Caribbean combined, about half of all the sugar consumed in Europe and North America. And because of this tremendous output, it was known as France's Pearl of the Antilles, a reference to its wealth and its location. Indeed, the wealth generated by sugar helped prop up the French war machine throughout the colonial era, especially under Louis XIV. There's an important question to consider. Why was sugar so valuable and significant? Before the early modern era, sugar was a rare and incredibly valuable commodity in Europe, often reserved for the nobility, because it had to be grown in a warm climate. Rotten teeth were seen by some as a sign of wealth, for only the upper crust could afford the sweet delights of sugar. And evidence from material culture provides further illustration of this fact, as many sugar bowls were ornamental and were made by silversmiths, and some even included a lock to prevent theft. But once the sugar revolution began in the 17th century, sugar became much cheaper and readily available throughout Europe. Indeed, the influx of easily accessible calories actually increased the length and the quality of life for Europeans, something that really feels like a paradox given our modern perceptions of sugar. But because of the way it changed daily consumption and the obvious ways it benefited everyday life, sugar transformed Europe. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. The tropical marine climate of the Caribbean enabled sugarcane to be grown throughout the year, and harvest time lasted for about six months. Enslaved people would first chop down the woody stalks, which grew between 6 to 20 feet tall, or 2 to 6 meters, and they used machetes or billhooks. After being put into a wagon, this was then pulled to a mill. 
There, the cane would be crushed between the mill's gears to extract the cane juice. And this process was powered by animals, people, water, or wind. Then, the extracted cane juice had to be boiled. And this process reduced it to molasses, which was stable enough to store in barrels. These were then shipped to European factories, which refined the molasses further into sugar. We normally think about agriculture as a diurnal process, or one that occurs during the day. And certainly, the most visible labor of harvesting sugar happened under a hot sun. But one of the things that I personally find fascinating as a historian of the night is the fact that sugarcane had to be processed all night long. Because once the sugarcane was harvested, it was like starting a ticking clock. The cane juice needed to be extracted within a few hours, as otherwise it would turn rancid within the cut stalks and then be unusable. This placed time pressure on milling, and it didn't matter whether or not the natural day had come to an end. A first-hand account from Jean-Baptiste Labat, who was a French Jesuit priest who traveled throughout the Caribbean during the early 1700s, described the working conditions for the enslaved women who fed the mill at night. He wrote, Exhausted with the day's work and sleepiness, they fall asleep while pushing the canes, and leaning over the workbench while still holding the canes, they involuntarily follow them and are crushed before they can be rescued. Labat went on to describe the injuries and deaths in gruesome detail, but such incidents were not just a rarity meant to titillate his readers. Indeed, these accidents were common enough that riders advised plantation owners to stash machetes by the mill in order to cut off the ensnared limb and save the trapped person. And because of this, there were many amputee slaves on plantations. However, the night's labor did not end with the milling process, as the cane juice needed to be heated in the boiling house and gradually transformed into molasses. And this meant that several people had to tend the cauldrons of syrup throughout the night, working indoors in hot and smoky conditions. And then, when the mixture was sufficiently thickened into molasses, it would be cooled and transported in hogsheads to ships in the harbor who would then sail it across the Atlantic Ocean to a refinery. Remember that, on top of the demanding labor and lack of sleep, every step of the way was supervised by drivers and overseers who abused the workers. We should keep in mind that working around the clock was not unheard of in the early modern era. Iron forging and glass making are examples of two types of labor that required some overnight work. Distilling liquors such as whiskey and rum also necessitated 24-hour labor. But these examples were limited in scope to a few nights a year. And in comparison, Caribbean sugar processing required enslaved people to do this for six months out of the year. And also unlike the factories of the Industrial Revolution that came later, Many of the same people who cut the sugarcane during the day were milling or boiling it at night, hence the stories of exhaustion. To shift gears from this dark story of industrialization, 
I want to shift to quickly discuss two types of positive self-expression or enjoyment that people in the French Caribbean could experience, specifically by examining some nocturnal activities. And while oppression certainly dominated everyday existence in these colonies, we should not define people by this oppression. But instead, we should look to see how they chose to live their lives when they had freedom. Let's start with the realization that, despite the demands of nighttime work in sugar mills, the hours of darkness were viewed as a time that enslaved people could enjoy some independence. They could form family ties, tend their own vegetable crops, and even travel to neighboring plantations to gather with other enslaved people. This was especially true for Saturday evenings, as Sunday was supposed to be a day of rest in order to observe the rites of the Catholic Church. Like their Spanish counterparts, French slaveholders were legally required to train the enslaved population in Christian tenets. This also meant that the observance of most African religious beliefs, such as Islam, were forbidden under colonial law. Despite this, enslaved people developed new spiritualities, often creating syncretic practices that drew upon their experience. And there were several traditions that were passed down via oral culture, based upon their African heritage and their interaction with Roman Catholicism. And as such, they created a new creole, to bring back that term, type of religious expression. And most notable among these in the French Caribbean was voodoo, often described as voodoo in the American context. Europeans described it as being bizarre or mere superstition. The French lawyer, writer, and slaveholder Moreau de saint Marais derided voodoo, saying that it, quote, never takes place except secretly, when the night casts a shadow in a closed place and sheltered from all profane eyes. And it was true that many practices recognizable as voodoo occurred at night, in part because this was the time that it was available. For African-descended people, the night was not as scary as it was for Europeans, in part because of their different beliefs, but also because of their lived experience greater freedom. Many of the most beneficent spirits were believed to roam at night, and for some of those nocturnal spirits that were evil, their power was limited to areas lit by the moon, and staying in complete darkness could keep the traveler safe. There were several traditions within Vodou that occurred at night. For example, there were nighttime dances with large groups that had spiritual function, namely the performance of rites that were intended to help individuals contact their loa. And the loa were seen as spirits that communicated with Bondi, the supreme deity of Vodou, and they provided various types of help to practitioners. There were also nighttime ceremonies to mark the death of community members. And although slightly different from the nine nights tradition found in other parts of the Caribbean, enslaved people in French territory would set aside several consecutive nights to mark the passing of family and friends, with the last night serving as a type of celebration or funeral. These examples show us that life in the French Caribbean was certainly difficult for enslaved people, but they created and maintained culture and community despite their conditions. Let's transition to look at something that the upper-class residents of the French Caribbean cities enjoyed in the late 18th century, the theater. 
And although the first theater wasn't built in the colonies until 1762, demand for theatrical performances exploded over the next three decades. Before the Haitian Revolution, there were 10 theaters on Saint-Domingue, three on Martinique, and two on Guadeloupe. Acting societies had high expectations for attendance, exemplified by Saint-Domingue's city of Cap-Francais, where the largest theater could hold 1,500 people, or almost 10% of the city's entire population. Like most theater performance in the 18th century, these usually started after dark, in the early evening, perhaps around 7 o'clock, and then continued for at least two to three hours. And for most attendees, this would be at the end of the workday. But for elites, this was the tail end of a day of socializing. Unsurprisingly, the inside of the theater was racially segregated. Indeed, this was considered by colonists to be a feature when the first theater in Cap Francais opened in 1766, the newspaper made sure to note that, quote, mulattoes and mulattresses, end quote, were relegated to the rear of the theater. The productions ran the gamut of what would be seen in a typical theater anywhere in Europe. Ballets, comedies, dramas, operas, recitations, and tragedies. Most of these would have been first performed in France, but they were modified to meet local expectations, especially as they portrayed race and slavery. Often, the star performer was traveling through the region on tour from France, but the other actors were members of the local acting societies or guilds. Personally, I would describe theater night as a marathon session of entertainment. The evening might begin with a multi-act opera, followed by a multi-act comedy, and then finish with a musical performance, such as a concerto. But the night would not be done. Many theatergoers would proceed from the theater to go to a ball, usually held in a large dance hall, where they would dance, drink, and eat for hours. This was seen as a socially acceptable way for men and women to meet and develop romantic relationships. However, there were also critiques that accused women of attempting to seduce men above their station or outside their race, and these were especially aimed at free women of color. One thing to keep in mind is that colonial elites wanted to mimic French metropolitan society. They desperately wanted to see themselves as equals to the European counterparts, and cultivating the theater and participating in balls was a way to do this. Well, that is a wrap on this episode on the history of the French Caribbean and nocturnality. Special thanks to Gary Giraud for letting me share some of my research with you. If you're interested in reading further on the topic, there are several books that I recommend that I will include in the transcript notes. Thank you for listening. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.